0: Welcome back everyone, David Sylvan here again. You'll recall this is the mini podcast series, Call of the Wild, Biomimicry for Healthcare Innovation. You've had the opportunity to listen to uh, parts one and two, Tricia Brown, Christina Hockman, both from Great Lakes Biomimicry. Now let's listen into a talk from Dr. Peter Pronovost. He is the Chief Clinical Transformation Officer from University Hospitals And again, recall, this is a live production. Please bear in mind some sound drop-ins, drop-outs with regard to the microphone. So Dr. Pronovost asked me to keep this short, but uh, I assure you this is actually the short version of uh, his introduction. He is a world-renowned patient safety champion and a critical care physician, published over 800 peer-reviewed publications. His scientific work uh, leveraging checklists to reduce catheter-related bloodstream infections have saved thousands of lives and earned him high-profile accolades, including being named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine, uh, receiving a coveted MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 2008 and regularly uh, recognized one as, as one of the most Influential executives and physician executives in healthcare. He is a global thought leader informing uh, the United, S- United States global health, uh, on global health policy. He's recently been named as co chair of the Health and Human Services Quality Summit with the charge to improve how HHS quality programs can be evaluated, adapted, and streamlined to drive the transition to value based care. We are very honored and excited to have him. I'm just going to flip the slide to his intro. And uh, please welcome Dr. Peter Pronovost, Chief Clinical Transformation Officer of University Hospitals.
1: Kip, thank you, and thanks to the innovation teams and the partners here today. This is a fascinating, fascinating uh, conference. I'm going to broaden the lens, because I think biomimicry is so much bit bigger than just tech and explore a little bit. First, uh, why innovation? Well, because as you
0: know, innovation is the engine that drives productivity and GDP.
1: Innovation is the driver that lifts people out of poverty. In healthcare, innovation is what's going to allow us to stop harming people too often, because despite the miracles that we do, we know healthcare still harms too often Costs way too much and learns and improves too slowly. So, where do we generate these innovations and how do they emerge? Well, the science is pretty clear. Innovation comes from ideas meeting and meeting. Ideas collide, different ideas, and a newer level of understanding emerges. But the reality is, they're generally not new ideas, they're almost always application of an existing concept in a different field or for a different application. But that requires people are connected. They they are open to these different ideas. And what better teacher than Pachamama or Mother Nature? You see, nature has been innovating for 3.5 billion years. Much of what we're trying to do has already been invented. There's no greater innovation engine than biology. And through that, we are you've shared a lot of your ideas about how we could leverage those ideas to drive innovation and improvement. And I'd like to go with you a smattering of some, some at a higher level that you may not have thought of before, but at a level that I think you will resonate with. First, innovation is practice. So challenge for you. You heard Kim talk about our work on infections. She these infections killed 100,000 people a year, more than breast or prostate cancer. We found a cure, simple cure, a checklist, and we're challenged to spread it across the country. So you're faced with this challenge to say, how do I organize a national effort? And remind me, these aren't people who you report to. You're not paying them. This is an entirely voluntary effort. So we took a look at the world's greatest management structure we've ever invented, and that's fractals. Fractals are ferns, they're broccoli, they're mountain taps. For the biologists, they're capillaries, they're our vili in our lungs. Fractals are identical shape, but varying size structures. Identical shape, but varying size structures. And they do something really unique. They operate by simple mathematical models. But most importantly, they operate by this concept that every higher level in a fractal has a connection to every lower level. And why is that important? Well, because I said innovation comes from sharing different ideas. What a fractal does, it allows for co-creation of goals at different levels of an organization. It allows for peer learning, and it also provides a structure for accountability. So how did this fractal get played out? got played out, there was a national team that pulled together Health and Human Services, CDC, and AHRQ, American Hospital Association. That cascaded down to, within each state, a state team of health departments, health hospital associations, that all connected and learned from each other. It cascaded down within the state to hospitals that each had a team from their ICUs that shared, and within a hospital, it cascaded down to the bedside nurse. Fractals apply. My UH college, we apply this program in almost every change agent that we're trying to do because we know change progresses at the speed of trust, and trust grows when you have structures that do things with rather than to people. Fractal is probably the greatest management structure the world has ever known. Second idea from management systems comes from birds. You see, we, after these infections been down by 90% across the country, think about that. A problem the size of breast cancer eliminated in 15 countries now by 90%. We got curious to say what it worked, what drove it. Well, turns out we learned, as we were structuring this, that we birds have taught us we needed to be much more like a blue tick than a red robin. Much, much more like. Yet, us in society are too much like red robins. What's the difference? How many of you have seen Mary Poppins? Now, you probably know that in the background of Mary Poppins, birds chirping is very prominent throughout the whole play, when she's skipping in the park, when she's caring for the children, when she's flying down from with her umbrella. And that's because in the late 40s, London was full of two types of melodious songbirds, the blue tits and the red robins. And they thrived in downtown London because they used to peck through the tops of the milk containers that were left on people's stoops. They sucked the fat out and they were really plump, chubby and happy birds who were singing to their heart's content. But then the milk containers changed the tops. They moved their cheeks. They changed them from cardboard and steeple to aluminum and flat. It required the birds learn a new way of pecking. They had to tuck their beaks a little differently. And both birds were equally smart. But the red robins are extinct in London and the blue boobies thrive today. And the only difference is how they coordinate. The red robins are solitary birds. They have their stoop or their corner. We call it our discipline, our department, our school, our university, and that wisdom never disseminated. No collision or meeting and made of ideas. The blue movies are, are flocking birds. They fly strong and proud together so that wisdom quickly disseminated. They had a structure to support this collision or spread of ideas, and they thrive today. And my sense. The red robins are stifling innovation in all of our organizations, and we need to begin to break down those silos that would support it. Next innovation from Bob Creek is on a little bit lower management level of how we make decisions, how we make decisions. You see, we know there is almost entirely in every search unconscious bias in how we hire, how we promote. with. Women and minorities often greatly disadvantaged, or how we select vendors, where the person with the loud voice in the room creates groupthink and sways the whole team, and we make bad decisions. R- routinely, we do this. Who gets promoted? Someone doesn't like you. Even if there's other objective evidence, the room doesn't communicate that. Well, turns out bees happen to be the world's greatest decision maker by far. You see, bees select the next hive with the most uncanny precision and decision-making process. The way it works is the queen bee, a matriarchal society, sends out the drones to go find the next hive, and they go independently evaluate that next hive. And if they like it, they do this thing called the waggle dance. That is, they literally shake their butt in proportion to how happy they are about the next hive. It's kind of a rating system. So they waggle a lot and fast, really, really good high. But the other bees don't just accept that judgment. They go out and then test it themselves. And they waggle. And very quickly, you get a summation of waggling. They make the next decision. And some economists in the UK model this. and brilliant research and what they showed was that if they made the decision on that first bee's selection they made a deficient decision very fast but often wrong which is so much about our decisions in our work department on the other hand they found that if they made decisions blinding people to what others perceptions are they eventually stumbled on the right decision but the decision was highly inefficient and it took a long time and so the conclusion from this is we make wise decisions by collective discussion and private voting. Collective discussion and private voting. What does that mean? We now apply it to promotions criteria, where we have to about whether someone should get promoted or not, but we don't vote. Vote is a silent ballot, because we know the loud voices drawn out, the softer voices. When we're hiring people, same process. We want to hear what you have to say raise concerns, build upon things, voting is silent. When we're selecting vendors, as Sarah and many of us are involved in a new vendor selection for a wellness platform, same approach. Having discussions, keep the vote silent to make wiser decisions. Now, you heard a lot of biomedical stuff, and typically what we're doing from that is using animals as a means to understand human biology. Animals as a means. What we need to do greatly more of is understanding nature as an end of itself for innovation. And let me share with you one idea. It's actually the previous discussion that we just heard about the vascular graphs. One simple innovation to begin to think about, look at, is that work on blood clots is spot on. They're a huge problem. And in these blood clots, they kill 100,000 people a year. 100,000 people a year. And the main reason they die is because we leave people in bed. And even sometimes several hours, or certainly a day in bed, people get blood clots and they die. And yet, bears hibernate the whole winter. They don't die of blood clots. Why? I don't know, but there's clearly a biological lesson that we could can learn. Cancer biology, some really innovative stuff going on with large mammals. You see, a statistician in the UK, Richard Peto, published some interesting research. It's called Petto's Paradox, that if cancer is mutations in individual cells, then larger organisms should have more cancer because they have more cells. Largest animals being whales, elephants, but they don't. Indeed, whales and elephants have four times lower cancer mortality rate than humans do and their incidence of cancer is about 15 times lower than humans do. Why? Well, turns out what we just discovered is that large mammals have about 10x more tumor suppression cells. So they have more cells, but but they developed mechanisms to defend against those cancer cells. And there's a richness in understanding biology, not as a mirror for human, but in their own right of what Mother Nature has provided us in ways that we could learn together. The technology application that Kip and the UH Ventures team
0: is absolutely brilliant. You see, we have a lot of needless suffering in healthcare when people show up at a health
1: system and they get lost or worried. and that's, I suspect it probably happened to... to Many of you, these large complex systems like Cleveland Medical Center are enormous, a million or a million and a half square feet. We've tried to make signages, but it's not a great technology. And every day you can walk through any health system in this country and people are scared, they're worried, they're anxious because they know they want to get to their appointment and they're lost, they often have limited mobility, they can't get there. And how do we solve that? Well, the Ventures team developed some really great innovation taking from turtles. You see, turtles have this great geolocation technology based on the magnetic pull of Earth. It's how they find their way back home. And we put that into UH now, relatively inexpensive because it works off the magnetic pull, not some fancy technology that we have to put sensors in the whole health system. And we now have over 1,000 patients being guided to the next side of care, by turtle technology. So my friends, how do we think about your role in innovation? If we know innovation is driving productivity, it's making societies better, it's lifting people out of poverty, how do we as individuals and collectively expand that? Well, my plea is that each of you start acting more like a jellyfish than an elephant. What do I mean by that? All of us who have training have grown up in this era of being like an elephant. That means we have generally one deep methodological training and know almost nothing about anything else, whether I'm a physicist, or a biologist, or a physician, or a proteomics person, or a computer scientist, and we need deep methodological training. But if we buy this idea that innovation comes from ideas meeting and mating, If I'm blind to that idea, I don't even have a lens to think of it, I'm never going to welcome that discipline or reach out and say, wow, what can I learn from physics? What what can I learn from chemistry? What can I learn from systems engineers? What we need to be more is like a jellyfish. You see, jellyfish have one long tentacle, and we do need a methodological grounding, believe me. You need to be an expert in some discipline. But you need to be humble and curious enough to grow many other short-term, to know about systems engineering or economics or sociology or physics. You don't need to be an expert in that, but you need to know enough to know what that discipline might offer as you're trying to solve these kinds of problems and then connect with other people to bring them together. Because ultimately when you are like a jellyfish, we can create structures that allow People to come together to innovate. We can create structures that allow us to be much more like aspen trees than maple trees. Aspen trees. I don't know if any of you know the biology, but think of Avatar, which is what the trees in Avatar were modeled after. You remember, you saw the the movie where they all held hands and they vibrated and they created energy because they were all connected. Well, that's truly what aspen trees do. There is no single aspen tree. They're a family. They are communicating. They great amazing evidence that they literally feel, they communicate, they share emotions because they're all interconnected in this web. And that's when we are open to these ideas, we can create those structures where ideas could meet and meet. Because ultimately, I believe the secret of innovation is love. And in my love, I don't mean this 50-year marriage. By love, I mean what the psychologist Barbara Friederson describes in her book, Love 2.0. She studies the biology of love, literally what makes oxytocin, the cuddle or or nursing or orgasm hormone spike. And what she found is that love spikes in micro-moments of connection. I feel warm towards you, you feel warm towards me and we create energy. So love is reaching out to that other discipline and saying, God, I'm struggling with this. What might systems engineering contribute to solving these problems? And being open to learn and humble enough to learn from that. You see, we have enormous opportunity to make this world a better place. And this conferences like this and drawing and biomimicry are uh, the places to go. What we have to do is make sure we come to it with the mindset of being like a jellyfish. We create those structures like an aspen tree that we could all be connected, and in our hearts, we make these little micro moments of love. So thank you, and again, thanks to the Ventures team for an amazing conference.
0: I think you'll all agree that was tremendous. That was part three of the four-part series. Stay tuned. Our last part from the from this series uh, will be brought to you soon.